This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 126, and we are recording on April 3rd. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Joe Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Spring break! Hello! Yes. It's not spring here yet again. It was for like two days. We got two days of spring, and now it's not spring again. Is it snowing? It was yesterday. Today it's just like rainy and gross. Which I guess is kind of April, actually, technically speaking. I I was on Twitter looking at like, did you see Mark, um, oh, what's his last name? Ashino? Oh, Shiro. Oh, Shiro, yes. His book, Anger is a Gift, is coming out in the summer. Um, but he tweeted a video of himself walking through New York in the snow, just being <laughs> mad. <laughs> I was like, so. Mark. Oh, buddy. <laughs> oh, fair. So what are you reading in your not springtime, springtime? In my not springtime, springtime. Yeah, I'm finally reading Her Body and Other Parties by yes. Carmen Maria Machado. Yes, I know what you love. Um, <laughs> I was like wandering around Philly a couple weekends ago after meeting a friend and I wandered into um, a bookstore and I was like, what should I get? Because I can't walk into an mm. indie bookstore without buying something. And then I was like, I know, because I've had this book on hold at the library for actual months, like since it came out and have yet to get it. <laughs> um, so I just finally bought it and I started reading and wow, it, I can see why it won all of the prizes and all of the um, com- like accolades from everyone. It's a collection of short stories, if you haven't heard, um, that are kind of horror and kind of sci-fi and kind of fantasy and kind of fabulous um, and kind of funny but also really dark like there's a lot going on here um, so yeah I'm only like I literally have only read one story in the collection at this point because I just start I just picked it up yesterday but it was the ribbon around the next story and I was just like mm. oof like wow it's a gut punch it's a gut punch what about you um, I just started a new audiobook called Give Work by Leela Jana um, I saw her on so she on a podcast that I listened to I don't remember I think she was on a podcast she is the head of a nonprofit called Sama Source that gives employment like digital uh, work to people in impoverished countries who make less than two dollars a day and it's um, part of her like she comes from a NGO background and the World Bank and all of this and so she um, has decided that the way to lift people out of poverty is not through like foreign aid but through like giving them dollars <laughs> for jobs that they are doing um and so I picked up her book because she sounded so interesting and this is the thing that like I you know I give money to charity I don't really think about it so much um and so yeah I picked it up just out of curiosity and it is so fascinating like the ways the points that she makes about foreign aid in country in like impoverished countries in Africa for example are so like eye-opening to me because, you know, you think about foreign aid and, I'm you know, I have a history degree and so do you. And I think about like the Marshall Plan after mm-hmm. World War II and how that helped pull Europe up out of its, you know, war uh, war time poverty. And she was talking about how that sort of plan is it, we do the same sort of things in the impoverished countries of Africa, except it doesn't work at all because those governments were set up by colonialist countries and were only created to like siphon resources out of those countries and not to do anything that's representative of the people who actually live there. So like trying to give money to those governments doesn't actually do anything for the people who live 
in those like in those slums. And so she goes into those countries with her company and gives them work. And it's so I you know, part of me is like, isn't that just outsourcing? Like, isn't that just right? That's right, just right. What that is. And like, I have qualms about globalization and all mm-hmm. that. But she has chapters about both of those things later in the book that I haven't gotten to. So she will address it. And we'll see. Interesting. We'll see. But it's like she's getting excellent results from her company is so i don't you know just shruggy i like learning things is what i'm saying so that's what's happening (laughs) anyway (laughs) so that's what we're reading how the show works um so like i said this is a show for personalized book recommendations so you send us your recommendation requests whether you need a book rec for your book club or for yourself or you're traveling and you want to read something about the country we're going to Whatever can be anything. You can email those to us at book uh, at getbooktobookwrite.com or you can drop them in the form in the show notes uh, on the site. So if your question is time sensitive and you need it answered by a certain date, please note that like in the subject line of the email or if you're using the form in the show notes on the site, put it in like big bold letters in the top so we can try to get to it on time. We also answer questions via email occasionally. If, if your question's already been answered on the show or it's time sensitive and we're not going to get to it in time for whatever event that you need the book for, um, we will email you back instead of answering it on the show. So watch your inboxes. We do have a bit of feedback from a listener. Um, there was a question on last week's show. Not last week. Last week was with Neil, the Neil Gaiman episode. But the week before from a listener named Madeline who was asking for like gothic house, psychological thrillers, big creepy books. Um, and oh, I didn't put who gave us this feedback. I I'm pretty sure it was an insider. But we got a recommendation for The Red Tree by Caitlin R. Kiernan, um, which is femme slash, and, ha- and she says, feverish anxiety, satanic basement. So I, there you go. <laughs> satanic basement and feverish anxiety. That does sound very gothic-y house creepy. So thank you for that. All right. We're going to read our first sponsor. I mean, read our first question, tell you about our first sponsor, and then get rolling. So go, go, Gadget John. All right. Our first question is from Emily, who says, I was hoping you could help me find a book for my holiday. I'm going to spend four days in a cabin in the North Yorkshire Moors, and I would like to find an atmospheric book where nature and magic feature prominently. Uh, Most of the books I immediately thought of, Uprooted by Naomi Novik, The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden, and Winter Song by S.J. Jones, I've already read, and I'd like to read something new. I love romance, magical realism, fantasy, and fairy tale retellings, and I look forward to hearing what you might suggest. All right, so our first sponsor is Rebel with a Cupcake by Anna Mannering from KCP Loft. And this is about a woman named Jezebel, uh, Jezebel Jones, who says what she wants, eats what she wants, lives how she wants, no regrets. But then a more uh, like really terrifying wardrobe malfunction leads to, have her, to her having a really bad encounter um, with a ter- terrible mean girl, and her confidence takes a nosedive. Being fat has never bothered her before. But she just she starts wondering if maybe she's been a little too comfortable with her body. And then the boy of her dream seems interested in her. So all of these things are happening in her life that makes her question her comfort with herself. So she has to decide whether to try to fit in with what everybody wants from her or what she thinks people want from her or to remain true to herself, who she is, and how happy she is with her own body. So if you are into Bridget Jones' diary, you will love this. And if you like books that explore questions about fat shaming, self-confidence, or body image, this will be right up your alley. So that's Rebel with a Cupcake by Anna Mannering. And thank you for sponsoring the show. Mm-hmm. All right. So my pick for you, nature-y, sci-fi, magic-y stuff, is Crossroads of Canopy by Thraya Dyer. And this is very heavy 
on the magic. It's like high fantasy, whereas Uprooted um, and a lot of the books that you name, I feel like are kind of not low fantasy. Is that even a thing? No. Like, <laughs> chill on the fantasy, you know, fantasy light. <laughs> Maybe. This is like epic. Um, so the main character's name is Unar. She's a young girl. I think she's 13, 12 or 13 um, when the book opens. And she lives in Canopy, which is this giant forest city at the, at the top level of this giant forest. And 13 kingdoms fit together to make up this big city. It's very lush. Obviously, it's in the top of the trees. Um, and magic-centered. Every kingdom has its own, like, goddesses and gods that rule, help rule over the realm. And they, these deities are continuously reincarnated into human bodies. There are a whole magic system set up around it and a whole religious system set up around it. Canopy does not have, or Canopy has a terrible dark side, however, which is that it has a very uh, large slave trade where they take people from understory and the floor which are other realms of the kingdom which are self-explanatory underneath the canopy and then the people who live on the floor of the forest um so it's kind of like a generation ship sort of a thing where the different levels represent different um the higher you are in the ship the like more wealthy you are it's the same sort of thing but in a magical forest and so Unar lives in canopy uh but her family is actually still pretty poor and her parents decide to sell her into slavery uh because she's not really marriageable she has a bad temper they don't want to wait around for a guy to get interested in her they just want her gone and so she has a very convenient religious awakening when she overhears this plot happening and decides she's going to go serve uh, in the temple of a fertility goddess so she does that and her brush her like very slight brush with slavery and how she got out of that situation makes her sympathetic to the slaves in the temple and so the book is really about her awakening when you when you meet her she's kind of the worst like she's very self-centered she's like a teenager you know um she's not concerned with what's happening in the other realms of the kingdom she doesn't even really care about what's happening in her own kingdom she's so poor her family was so poor that her focus was really just like hanging out with her sister protecting her sister and finding food to eat and that was really it and so she has a kind of political awakening and a religious awakening while she is serving in this temple. Uh, and so I picked it because it's like it's got a very social justice kind of message and it's an interesting and well-imagined world. But also it's it's kind of got that uprooted like the magic is in the roots of the trees and the magic is in the atmosphere of the forest and it's very nature centered so yeah so and I'm pretty sure it's a trilogy but don't hold me to that. So that's Crossroads of Canopy by Thraya Dyer. I picked Queen of Blood by Sarah Beth Durst, which is the first in the Queens of Rencia, Renthia, excuse me, series. Um, and the third one comes out very soon. This month, next month, ne like this summer. So if you like it, there's two more for you. Um, and it also takes place in a forest that people live in, except in this one, the forest is very dangerous. Um, the magical world that this takes place in, there are all of these like forest spirits and they basically just want to kill and eat humans. Like that <laughs> is their number one desire. Um, but the way that this world is set up is that there's a queen, um, as you might have guessed from the title. And the queen is uses her magical powers to tame the forest spirits and make sure that they don't actually just go around killing people. Um, and the queen can harness the magic of the spirits to like do good things and make fancy tree castles and all of this stuff. But the queen has to be strong enough to control the spirits. Um, so this is about a young woman who makes it into a school that trains up uh, 
like young women basically to be potentials uh, candidates for the queen. Um, so, and a lot of the queens are short lived because the spirits are so dangerous. So they always need to have a bunch of candidates sort of waiting um, who can either be warriors for the queen or might become the queen themselves. Um, and Delena, who is the main character, is doesn't seem like she's gonna be make much of herself she's like doesn't have like super fancy powers she is very determined and very pragmatic so she makes it work but she's not like the obvious like she's not you know the most talented in the school. Um, and so she's really there to learn to control her powers and to try to do her best. Um, but she's not ever thinking that she is going to become a queen. Uh, and this is the story of what happens after that. Um, so it is uh, very action-y. There's a lot of fights with the forest spirits. There's a lot of darkness. Um, you get a couple different characters. There is this uh, warrior who has been banished and he is trying to like make sure that you know the realm is safe even though he's sort of been banished from um the court and you get the current queen's perspective and there may be some stuff going on there that shouldn't be so there's a lot of like a little political intrigue going on as well um and it, it's not i mean it sounds at first glance a lot like uprooted but they have very different feels to them the similarity is just that like trees are bad so <laughs> <laughs> so that's the queen of blood uh by sarah beth durst Okay, question two is from Sandra, who says, I'm writing to you in desperate need <clears throat> excuse me, of new authors. I'm a diehard fan of Chris Bojillian. Mm, Thank you. <laughs> and, and love thought-provoking novels. One of the things I love about Bojillian is that he writes about a number of subjects and his endings are very unexpected. Do you know of any similar authors in style? Okay, I picked Colson Whitehead because Colson Whitehead cannot pick a genre. <laughs> like, it just can't. The man writes all over the place. And Bajillion, I have read a couple of his books, and he does the same thing. Like, some of his books are creepy and, like, set in, um, you know, the present day. He writes a lot of historical fiction. And Whitehead has hit on a lot of the same notes. He wrote The Underground Railroad, which was, of course, a huge success from last year, and is a historical fiction and fabulist kind of novel set in the Civil War era. Um, he also wrote Zone One, which is present day creepy zombie novel but he's written a lot of really interesting uh nonfiction too well a lot i mean the one that i've read the noble hustle where he got paid by some um was it the new yorker it was a publication he got paid a lot of money to go sit in the uh poker world tournament in vegas and like he had no experience with playing poker at all so he had to do all of this training and then go to the actual world series of poker and play Texas Hold'em. And he is a very, um, <clears throat> I don't even know, like nihilistic almost kind of mm. thinker. And so that like very dry, believes in nothing kind of philosophy paired up with like his time in Vegas and learning how to gamble is so fascinating. Uh, and he's also written a couple of um, volumes of literary fiction, like Sag Harbor is based on his life growing up in New York. Um, so they're just he's just all over the place. And all of it is good. Like, all of it is fascinating. All of it is interesting. He's one of, I'd say, the most, like, versatile writers living right now. So just go read all of it. I don't even know where I would tell you to start. Sag Harbor is probably the most accessible, but The Underground Railroad is his most famous. And if you like Bajillion's historical fiction, then that will probably speak to you um, pretty well. So, yeah, Colson Whitehead, go forth. Yeah, I also was trying to think of authors who are very wide ranging and my pick for you is Dara Horn. Um, the first book that I feel like really got 
reviewer's attention was The World to Come, which is about an art heist. Um, a Chagall is stolen from a museum during a cocktail hour, um, and the thief, it, like, believes that it belongs to his family. Um, and then you, like, get into this, like, whole family history story. Um, one of her most recent ones is called Eternal Life, and that one is about a woman who is born, like in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, like, you know, 2,000 years ago, and um, makes a bargain with God to save her son and ends up living forever. And it's about, like, when you live forever, do you... Like, she keeps getting married and having kids. Like, she she remains able to have children. So what does it mean to have a family when you're going to outlive them all the time? Um, and then another one, you can see she's got, like, very wide-ranging. And the first book that really sold me on Darahorn was uh, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is, like, a three-tiered book that takes place in the near future and then sort of the colonial era and then farther back um, in the medieval times and it's all about technology and memory and like how do we make choices and also family so it she has that very wide-ranging sort of interest um and she does bounce around from contemporary to historical she's a little more speculative than Bojalian ever gets like his books are all very uh, sort of can like their realistic fiction and Darahorn plays a little bit more with some speculative elements, but they're all grounded in reality and they all are definitely like exploring complicated questions. And I, what I remember a lot of um, from Bojalian's work is that you're sort of like on the fence about some of the characters and their actions. And you're like, Hmm, I wonder how do I feel about this? And I feel like Darahorn does that really well. Um, she, she's asking a lot of questions questions about that about things that there aren't easy answers for and I always appreciate when an author can do that thoughtfully and and give me uh, an interesting narrative reading experience but also leave me thinking about some issues and she does that really well so that is my pick for you Dara Horn I don't I mean it really you could just go look at her books and see which one sort of sparks your interest first but they're all really interesting so yeah I, I also kind of don't know how to tell you where to start. <laughs> Go forth and explore. Um, okay, question three is from Brittany, who says, I'm heading to Scotland in April for my 30th birthday. Congratulations, by the way. I'm so jealous. Um, would like some suggestions on either historical fiction or nonfiction books about Scotland. I love the Outlander series, so anything about the Highlands would be great. I also love reading about the history of castles. Amanda, what you got? I love my pick because it is primary sources. Yes. <laughs> so I picked Scotland, the autobiography by Rosemary Goring. And this is a history of Scotland starting with Tacitus in like 80 AD and all the way up through present day. Um, but it is all collections of primary sources, like I said. So like documents from people living through these periods of history talking about exactly what's happening, like talking about their lives and experiences uh, with, you know, historical context from the author within it. So there's like an an account of the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. There's speeches from Oliver Crom uh, Cromwell and Adam Smith and David Livingston. There's stuff from uh, like, uh, what's her name? Ooh, who wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brody? I can't remember her name now. Muriel Spark. Yes, from Muriel Sparks talking about how she came up with the characters for that book. And there's actually a lot of... Um, authors and artists in the book that talk about their creative processes and how their uh, work was like inspired by their country that who I had no idea were Scottish at all including her <laughs> so that's interesting uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle talks it, there's some uh, work from him in there also and then of course like 
people from history. It's not just authors talking about writing their Scottish books. It's lots of historical stuff too. Um, and it isn't just famous people either, It's a, which I really love. It's a lot of firsthand accounts from normal, everyday Scotsmen and women just living their lives. Like there's a, um, I think it's a diary entry from a prostitute who's like starving uh, in the 1700s. Survivals of the Battle of Culloden in 1746 talk about their experiences. And these were just, you know, foot soldiers um, talking about what that was like. Uh, so yeah, it's very, it's you know, it's all encompassing. It's very wide ranging, of course, because the nature of primary sources and literacy rates are such that there aren't a lot from before the modern era of history. Uh, it does start with like the Roman occupation, um, but there are bigger gaps. But until you get up to like the 1800s when literacy rates started climbing a little bit more. Um, so it is pretty heavy on the like post industrial revolution side of Scottish history. But what she provides of before that is also super fascinating. So yeah, it's really great. So that's Scotland, the autobiography, 2000 years of Scottish history by those who saw it happen by Rosemary Goring. That book is so neat. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I picked a romance, a Scottish romance for you. I kind of couldn't resist. Um, and it's Once Upon a Tower by Eloisa James. It's technically part of her fairy tale series. And what she's done in the series is take different sort of fairy tale structures and then write Regency era romances out of them that aren't magical in any way. Like they're all like historical romance, Um, but she's sort of using the framework of a fairy tale. And this one is a little bit based on Rapunzel. Um, And it's about a Scottish laird, uh, Gowen Stoughton, who like is in search of an English bride um, and he wants like some, you know, he wants someone who's like quiet and sweet and lovely. Um, And so at a ball, he meets Lady Edith Gilchrist, who is actually feverish. Like she is, she is having a fever. She's ill. And, but her family like makes her go to this ball because they want her to land a good match. So she literally like can barely stay upright, can barely talk and doesn't really remember anything about the ball later but he is like he falls for her because like oh she has such good color in her cheeks because she's feverish um she's so quiet and retiring because she's feverish like can you see where this is going so he makes an offer for her hand and she's like I mean I guess okay sure like I'll marry this guy what um and so so they're they're in for a bunch of surprises. She is not who he thinks she is after this one meeting. And she is, like, confused about what he thinks um, because she doesn't really remember the ball. And then on top of it, this romance does something that I've never really seen anybody else do. They ha- When they have sex for the first time, it's not good for her. <laughs> um And she fakes it because she has been told um, by, you know, well-meaning... Uh, like other women that like you have to make sure that your husband, you know, is satisfied and thinks you're satisfied and here's how you do that. Um, And so this leads to all kinds of complications down the road as they start to have feelings for each other. But then there's a lot of miscommunications. And so she basically like locks herself in a tower because she's so done with him. She's like, you know what? Like we're married and that's fine. But like, I'm going to lock myself at like, I'm going to retire to this castle and you can go do whatever. Like, I don't care. I don't want to see you anymore. So he literally like climbs the castle walls to get her back. It's kind of amazing. Um, 
And yeah, so it, it starts in England, but then goes to the Highlands. It does have a castle. You said you liked castles. <laughs> and it's just a really fun and like kind of interesting and unexpected romance. So that's Once Upon a Tower by Eloisa James. I forgot about that book and it's so great. I mean, I just really, it really tickled me when it came out. And I know a lot of people didn't like it because it doesn't fit the standard sort of progression. But that's what I loved about it. Yeah, same. And when he's like, she's so demure. She won't look at him. And it's because like she's dizzy and about to pass out. Yes, exactly. She literally like can't move or talk because she's so sick. Love it. So good. All right. Question four is from Courtney, who says, my dad and I are going on a 13-hour road trip, and I'm looking for an audiobook in the fantasy genre, which we both love, with social justice themes and or characters who cope with loss without too much angst. He loves stories in all forms, but hasn't read in many years. He's a workaholic and a hermit, but a hopeless romantic, and leans towards well-known authors like Terry Brooks, Scott Card, and Tolkien. I lean more towards magical realism. My favorites recently have been Angel of Losses and The Gollum and the Genie. Okay, I went with The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden, which is an audiobook that is 12 hours exactly. So you'll have an hour for like chit chat and then 12 hours of audiobook to get you through um, this road trip. So this takes place in the in Russia in like the age of Ivan the Terrible. So like pre-industrial revolution, Christianity is happening, but it hasn't like spread through all of the hinterlands of Russia, which, as you know, has a lot of hinterland. Um, so it takes place mostly in a really, really northern village that is covered in snow and winter and frost and death for like eight of the 12 months of the year and the main character's name is Vasya um, and she is a little girl who is born to a woman who comes from a lineage of like magic like her the women in her family are in touch with the land and the magic is very uprooted-ish like of that kind of pagany um earthy vain. Um, But her father is a Russian nobleman, despite the fact that he lives in the middle of nowhere and is essentially a farmer. Um, He is related to the royal family through marriage. Uh, And so he's kind of very traditional. He's not so much into like her weird kind of magic stuff. And he goes off to Moscow one winter to find himself a new wife because his his wife and the mother of all of his children have died um, several years before. He goes off to Moscow to find a new wife um, and to marry off his sons and, like, basically lots of marriages. And he brings home this, the daughter of the ruling Ivan. It's not Ivan the Terrible, but, like, Ivan the Terrible's son, I think, or grandson who's on the throne now. And he has a daughter from his first marriage who is ostracized from court. She sees things. She's a little nuts. She's also very, very devoutly religious. And for political reasons, Ivan marries her off to his, you know, like, cousin from the north. So the dad brings home this wife, and she's super, super religious. And she's religious in a, in a fearful way, like, because she sees things. She's, she thinks that she sees demons and stuff like that. So she devouts, like, she, she becomes devout as a way to protect herself from the things that she thinks she sees. And when she meets Vasya, she doesn't, um, she sees her as a threat. Like, her ability to also see things that are maybe not there and communicate with spirits and forest sprites and all of these kind of things is, is very threatening to her. So she decides she's going to marry her off. And it becomes this kind of Cinderella-esque sort of situation with like a really domineering, cruel stepmother who gets worse and worse as the book progresses, except this girl, this little girl is not Cinderella. She's snarky and witty and adventurous, gets in a lot of trouble and will not be told what to do and like will not change so that she can be married off to like some respectable Russian person. Um, so there is also like a frost 
demon, I think. Is he would be considered a frost demon, like a, a frost lord, similar yeah. to like the Goblin King kind of a, a figure um, who she communicates with and like follows through the woods. And there's a lot of like magical realism y things happening. And as far as like a social justice message, it's a very feminist book. Like she is her whole family and everyone in her village is trying to marry her off and quiet her down and she just is not having it. So that's The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. This was weirdly hard for me to find one that had all of the like the themes and not a lot of angst and also was an audiobook. Yeah. Um so I went back to a favorite. It's Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, which is a 13-hour audiobook. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, and is so good. It has almost no angst. It has great social justice themes. It has a lot of the same sort of... I want to say like lightheartedness that you can find in um in like you know in fantasy um I, the three that you named are not like super lighthearted but uh she does manage that and then I think it will appeal to both of you um because it does play with sort of the fantasy tropes but then sort of ups the game a little bit uh so this takes place in um I think it's like regions ish era Britain and it is about uh, a young magician named Zacharias wife who was born into slavery um he's black and he was freed by a prominent magician who adopted him and raised him up and like saw his magical talent and sent him to school and now he he is has inherited the position of Sorcerer Royal of the Unnatural Philosophers, which is the organization of magicians in Britain. And they're all super like stuffy, old, gross white dudes and are not happy about it. Um, and on top of it all, the magic is drying up and they can't figure out why. So he has to go to the border of Fairyland to try to figure out why there is not enough English magic anymore. And on his journey, he stops off to do a lecture at a school for young women. And in this uh, sort of concept, women are not supposed to do magic. They can, but they're not supposed to. It's bad for them because they're, you know, the weaker sex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he goes to the school not expecting to find any actual proficient magic users. And there's this young woman named Prunella who's, like, got tons of power and is really good at magic and has never been formally trained except for, like, you know, wrangling all of these girls in the school. School. And he's just like, what is happening here? Why why do they have access to so much magic when we can't get enough for our spells? Why are the girls doing magic? Are girls supposed to do magic? Like, I have so many questions. Um, and hijinks ensue. There's a little bit of a love story. Um, and it's very much about two sort of outsiders because Prunella is biracial. Um, she's part Indian, part English. And um, and and like finding their paths in society and not sort of letting social pressures get to them, like acting out in spite of those things, finding allies. And it's just really fun. Like, it's so fun. I feel like this would be a really enjoyable thing to listen to on a road trip because there's there's a decent amount of action and there's a lot of like fun dialogue. And and I just feel like it would be very immersive. Um, But it's also kind of light. It's not super heavy. There's not a lot of like, you know, fairy tale jargon. So you're not going to miss anything if you like have to pay attention to an exit or whatever uh so that is sorcerer to the crown by zen cho fair warning it is technically the first in a series and the second book is not out yet but i think it stands alone pretty well 
Okay, it is time for our second sponsor, which is The Romance Reader's Guide to Life by Sharon Pywell, uh, published by Flatiron Books, which follows two sisters in their pursuit of passion and independence. It's a genre-bending novel that is part coming-of-age, part historical fiction, uh, also has elements of mystery and the paranormal. One of the sisters goes missing, and the other has to put aside her bookish life to find her and maybe start living in the process. Um, It has a book inside of a book, if that is a trope that you love if you love sister stories um it's also got a talking dog and a hot pirate so as you might have guessed from the title the romance reader's guide to life there are some elements from romance novels in it as well so this is a very unique read um one that has a lot of different genre elements to it and if genre bending books are a thing you love you should check it out so that is the romance reader's guide to life by sharon Pywell. thank you so much for sponsoring this show All right. Our fifth question is from Emily, who says, my husband wasn't much of a reader until he found Kurt Vonnegut, and then he read everything the man ever wrote. Now he's at a loss on what to read next, and none of my recommendations appeal to him. What can I suggest that will fill that place in his reading life? Uh, I know I don't even have to ask with y'all, but POC and women authors would be great. All right, Amanda, you talk. All right. I picked The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which I have heard more than one person describe to me as Kurt Vonnegut meets Dave Chappelle. So there you go. <laughs> so this was the first uh, book by an American to win the Man Booker, which I think is a like a great, I don't know, feather in its cap. But this is a satire about a young man who grows who's grown up in Florida. His father is a very controversial um, sociologist who subjected him to a lot of race-related experimentation when he was growing up, ostensibly for his research, but in reality nothing ever came of the research, and instead it just kind of messed with the kid's head. And now he is an adult, and his father has been killed in a shootout with the police, and there is no book, there is no, like, all of that work was supposed to result in a book or a memoir that was going to help, you know, put the family on the, like, fix the family's finances. None of that is real. So this kid is just, well, this man is just left with you know, the funeral bill and nothing else. And then his town, which is called Dickens in California, it's like a suburban outskirt of LA, is erased from the map. Like it, it's (laughs) detowned. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. It's, um, they lose their cityhood, townhood, countyhood, whatever. Um, and he is just so mortified and he decides that what he's going to do with his with himself now is get dickens back on the map literally figuratively so he comes up with all of these schemes like he installs signs that you know welcome to dickens um and he decides that he is going to uh do all these kind of more conventional things to get their townhood back and none of that works so then he takes some interesting steps including taking a slave um, and working to segregate the schools, again, starting with the school buses um, and the, the, like, public schools. All of this to get the town, like, in the public eye. And the, the process of doing that, of taking a actual slave who was a member of the cast of the Little Rascals, oddly, um, and segregating the schools puts him before the Supreme Court. He ends up in front of the Supreme Court. And um, then it goes from there. And, like, describing it is so painful because you're like, what? (laughs) But it's satire, so it's okay. And, like, Paul Beatty is a poet and he is a black man. Like, he is really examining these kind of stereotypes of black life and black life in California especially, um, specifically. And he is just skewering white liberals in this book in a way that's, like, right in the, yep. 
I I feel personally attacked right now, and I should. Um, so it is such a funny read that you will feel really bad about laughing at while you read it. So that's The Sellout by Paul Beatty. Yeah, super uncomfortable. So uncomfortable! Like, really well done. Even holding it, it, right? Like, because the cover has lawn jockeys on it? Yeah. It's it's like, like, its whole intention is to make you comfortable and uncomfortable, rather, and it succeeds wildly at that. Um, Super rough. Okay. Uh, It's a good, it's a really good pick. Um, My pick is The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood, also a satire. Um, And Atwood isn't always a comp for Vonnegut, but I do feel like The Heart Goes Last is exactly that kind of book. Um, It takes place in a near future in which the economy has really sort of collapsed. um, And there's a married couple, Stan and Charmaine, who are living in their car. And they just are like you know, barely scraping by. Um, And then this project sets up uh, called the Positron Project. And what it is, is basically a system in which you sign up to be imprisoned and to work like in this prison for six months out of the year. And then you alternate with other people um, who then you switch and be like civilians and they become the inmates. And then you switch again on a like monthly rotating basis, which is super weird, right? Like this is a super weird scheme. Um, and so Stan Charmaine are like, well, it's, it's employment, it's meals, like it's, it's guaranteed housing. Like, sure. Why not? Like what other options do we have? So they do this. Um, and it seems like it's going to be fine, except for that Stan and Charmaine are put on alternating schedules, which is not supposed to happen with married couples or so they've been told. So that gets complicated. And then, you know, they fall for other people and they start to understand that like things are not as they seem. And, but now they can't escape. Like they don't know how to get out. Um, and so what Atwood is doing here is she is looking at the prison industrial complex. She's looking at economics. She's looking at social mores and um, tropes. She's like really looking at a lot of different elements of society. But this book is also so weird and like kind of funny like there's like Elvis impersonators and like doll like lifelike dolls involved in the plot at one point. Um and and like watching Stan and Charmaine like trying to like make their marriage work like it it a little bit skewers married life as well like there's a lot of there's a lot of skewering going on here um and it's really sharp and it's just really odd and it is one of those books where you're like am i supposed to laugh at that like that's funny but is it is it okay if i laugh at that like this is weird um so and i think that you know that's one of the things that vonnegut has always done or had always done really well is that you're just like wow this is hilarious also terrible oh god so terrible um so that is the heart goes last by margaret atwood Okay, question six is from Ellie, who says, I'm going off to grad school in the fall in evolutionary biology. I'm looking for books that explore science and laboratory life, fiction or nonfiction. I enjoy reading about realistic depictions of the scientific mentality, the interpersonal relationships involved in working and living in the lab and field, and uncovering scientific breakthroughs, even when it breaks bad. If it does go well, though, even better. I'm not concerned with scientific accuracy. Examples of books like this that I've read and enjoyed are Lab Girl by Hope Jaren, The Southern Reach Trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer, and The People in the Trees by Hanya Yanagahara. If I could get recommendations by the summer so I could have time before grad school to read them before I'm actually trapped in a lab, that would be great. Okay, um, I picked State of Wonder by Ann Patchett, which is kind of her medical drama, scientific 
female retelling of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, um, if that makes sense. So the main character's name is Marina, and she has a doctor who was an OBGYN, and now she is working for a pharmaceutical company. And the pharmaceutical company has sent a team to Brazil into the jungle um, to investigate the surprising and very mysterious and weird fertility rates of a particular indigenous tribe who are having babies far past the age at which most women in any other culture hit menopause. Um, So they are, of course, going to investigate why this is happening. And because it's a pharmaceutical company and pharmaceutical companies are basically inherently evil, find out how they can exploit and make money off of this uh, situation. And so this team has been sent down there and one of the members of the team has gone missing and is presumed to be dead. And so Marina, who works for this company and knows the man and most of the people on this medical team in Brazil, is tasked by her bosses with the job of going down there to this village and finding out what happened and like finding this man if he is actually dead bringing him home and if he's not like locating him essentially and also while she's there checking up on the progress of the experiments so she goes down to brazil um completely unprepared she's a bit of a hapless character like she doesn't do any investigations about like will her cell phone work when she gets to brazil or like where am i gonna live um what kind of money do i need so she her like journey into hey hey the heart of darkness as it were (laughs) is uh fraught (laughs) and she encounters a lot of obstacles mostly of her own making uh and then she gets there and you follow her as she both checks in on the state of the experiment and does a lot of medical work and scientific work in the field and then also in her quest to find this man her missing colleague um who she actually has a personal history with shocker shocker so there's a lot of interpersonal drama and there is a lot of like sciencey stuff happening. I can't speak to the accuracy because I have no scientific background. So I have no idea if like the medical experimentation is is like accurately depicted. But I love Ann Patchett and I trust her to like do some research and not be totally off base when she's talking about this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I really liked the book. So that's State of Wonder by Ann Patchett. Okay, so my pick is Gem Signs by Stephanie Salter, which is the first in the Revolution series. If you like it, there are three and they are all out. Um, And this is one of those what-if science fiction books that explores genetic modifications. So the premise is that humanity has just barely survived a plague, like giant epidemic, but the way that they did it was to genetically modify basically everyone in humanity um, so that they would not have a recurrence of like falling prey to this epidemic. Um, However, of course, because humanity, it never stops there. And so in addition to modifying people to be healthier, they've also discovered that they can modify people to have different sorts of limbs or ultraviolet vision or supersonic hearing um, specifically to do certain jobs. So now there's this sort of class of people called the gems who are genetically modified um, who are basically owned by companies who developed them um, like grown in a lab uh, or like via lab in manipulation um, to do very specific jobs that like otherwise, you know, people with machine assistants would have to do. Um, and they don't have the same rights as other people. And this has come to a head and uh, there are like the companies want to control them because they consider them property. The gems would like actual human rights because they 
are people too. Um, there are these religious extremists who want them all dead because they're an abomination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the like sort of normal quote unquote norm majority, like doesn't quite know what to think about this. So there's a commission of scientists and politicians that are like, okay, we have to decide once and for all what is going on here. We're going to make like, you know, sort of like the UN in this uh, concept are going to make some rules about gems. And Eli Walker is the scientist who has to decide whether or not they can count as actually being human. And so you get the POV of a scientist. You also get to see inside of some of the companies that are developing the gems. And then you get the perspective of the gems themselves. And you get to see sort of all of the different communities that are interacting around this issue. And it's really interesting. And there is some like you know, fictional science. I have no idea, <laughs> but you say you didn't care about accuracy. So hopefully that, that is fine for you. Um, but it's really interesting and there's a lot of twists and turns and a lot of surprises. There are some scenes that are really hard to read because like, obviously this is, you know, a clear metaphor. Um, and, and there are some hate crimes depicted on the page. So that is, you know, trigger warning for that. Um, but it's a really fascinating series. I think Salter does a great job of showing all of the different angles without ever like trying to justify any of it. It's just like, this is what people might think. And here's how that would play out. Um, and, but also like giving a really compelling look at like how it is to be considered not a full person and what it looks like to fight for personhood. So that is Gem Signs by Stephanie Salter. And the last question is from Amanda, not this Amanda, a different Amanda, uh, who says, I'm a high school English teacher in a small southern town where I do not fit in at all, being the northern hippie teacher that I am. I'm struggling to find novels of quote-unquote literary merit that will be approved by the small town southern school board that I will have to go through to obtain new novels. My students do not love the usual 10th grade literature, such as Lord of the Flies or Shakespeare's Caesar, and I'd love something to add to my curriculum next year. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to keep talking. I picked Monster by Walter Dean Myers for you. It is a YA novel um, about that uh, the main character is 16 so that's approximately 10th grade if, depending on when you were born um, and it is a really incredible book. It's about a young man who is in court um, for being part of, he's been accused of being part of a robbery gone very wrong. Um, the uh, a few people, well, two people in particular, robbed a convenience store, and the owner of the convenience store ended up dead. And so every like they've hauled in anybody and everybody they think are involved in this, and now he is going to court, going to trial to find out like if he basically going to get charged with being an accessory to murder or not. Um, and Steve is taking, he's a high school student, he's a black high school student, and he's taking a film class um, in high school. So he's thinking about this whole experience, like the only way that he's able to make sense of this experience for himself is to think about it as if it was a movie. So he's writing down the experience as it goes along, as if he were making a film. Um, and so you literally get like, scene like shot direction and um you know scene setting and you see him sort of repackaging 
his actual life as if it was going to be a movie. And it's so interesting format wise. Like I feel like this is a really interesting book to teach because you can do so much with the actual format of the book. And it also moves very quickly because, you know, movies like there's not a lot of exposition. It's a lot of dialogue or it's a little bit of voiceover. And so the book moves very quickly and is not as like if they're having trouble and they're getting bogged down in some of the other books, like this is not a book that ever gets bogged down. Um, And it's also a really compelling look at like, what does it mean to be a good person? What do you know about yourself? Like, what does it mean to be part of a system that assumes the worst of you just on site? Like, he's considering a lot of huge questions here. um, And it's all done in a really amazing way. This book has won a bajillion awards for good reason. Uh, So that's Monster by Walter Dean Myers. Okay, I picked March, uh, book one, by John Lewis. Congressman John Lewis, um, for a lot of reasons. First of all, your kids are right. Lord of the Flies is an objectively <laughs> terrible, terrible kind novel. I have to agree. <laughs> and should be removed from all curriculums everywhere forever. Um, <clears throat> so I picked March because it's a graphic novel. So if you've got some reluctant readers, I feel like graphic novels are a great uh, way to get them into books. Um, because, you know, pictures, whatever. They're easier to read. Uh, uh, not always, but in some cases. Um, And also, it takes place in the South. Um, And John Lewis is a living congressman. He is a uh, from the Georgia 5th, which is a pretty sure outside of Atlanta, um, and is like an American historical icon. He was one of the big central figures of the civil rights movement and continues to do that to this day. So I think it's an easy book to teach because a lot of the things that are in the book are still relevant. And also, he's still alive. So like, you can go look him up and like, Look at what he's doing now and the things that he's done since the civil rights movement um, in his career as a politician. Um, So there's a lot of like co-stuff you can teach around it. But the graphic novel is actually a trilogy um, and it comes in like a box set if you get all three. And it's his memoirs. And in telling the story of his life, he's telling the story of the civil rights movement, specifically the civil rights movement of the South. So the first volume um, addresses his youth where he grew up in rural Alabama. His parents were sharecroppers. Um, and he, you know, went to a segregated school. Um, and then in his youth, he met Martin Luther King, um, and started developing the Nashville student movement, um, which worked to do a lot of like nonviolent and to, uh, dismantle segregation in Nashville and in other major cities, um, in the South. And then the other volumes follow him throughout the rise of the civil rights movement, you know, the March, uh, March on Washington and Selma and all of those things. Um, and, it's super affecting. Um, the images give a lot of power and weight to the things that he's talking about. The art is really, really well done. And because the art adds to it, it's another aspect of the book that you can talk about outside of just the literary merits of which it is, you know, like it's it's very well written. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's also won tons of awards, including the Coretta Scott King Award um, and the Will Eisner Comic Awards, like just t- tons. So there's no way that a school board can argue that it doesn't have literary merit, um, at all and the only way that they could really fight it is uh, if they don't like black people like that's the only argument that there's no way to say that it doesn't have relevance um or isn't teachable so yeah so that's what i picked i love this trilogy so so much so that's march book one by john lewis is that our show? That's our show. Hey. Yes, it is. Yay. Just hands. Thank you so much for listening. Please go leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Or if you don't like it, you know, 
equal opportunity rating <laughs> happening here. Thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen. And I am on Tumblr. It's jenirl.tumblr.com. And that's Jen with two N's. And we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>